Let me introduce you. Let me introduce you. Welcome to this episode of Let Me Introduce You, which is three best friends from film school getting together to talk about films that at least one of the others has not seen. Each week, one of us will watch a movie the other loves or hates that the others have never seen. We'll dissect it, talk about why that movie is important to us, or why it is memorable. Some weeks we'll pick our favorites, some weeks we will intentionally pick terrible movies. Mean. You know, whatever we're feeling. Our theme this week is movies you've seen more than anything else. I am one of your hosts, Ashley, and this was my week to pick a film. And the film I chose was Clue, because I love it so much. I'm so excited to talk about this. Seriously, if you haven't seen it, like, I don't, what were you doing? I don't know. In the 90s, were you not in your basement watching basic cable? Is this the question for, for Katie? My name is Katie, and this was the new movie to me. And I don't, I don't know why I'd never seen it before. I just didn't fall under my family's purview, I guess, when we were growing up. I did want to say, though, that all three of the films we've picked as our favorites all fall in the mid to late 80s, which I thought is kind of perfect. Mm. I agree. I agree. And who are you, we'll kind make sure sir? To- Katie, sh- be quiet. It's my turn to introduce oh my myself. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Graham, and I have seen this a million times, and I'm still agog that Katie has never seen this movie. Like, literally. Like, literally, what were you doing? Watching Hellraiser, apparently. Apparently. Yes. And being being attracted to scary men who like to... (laughs) No, he was fine. But I was looking at this, and I'm like, I don't know why I'd never seen it, because I love everyone in this movie. I looked at the cast, and I was like, holy lord. I was very excited. Yeah, it is a amazing cast that we will dive into um head first head first head first (laughs) first feet first communism first (laughs) it's a red herring it's a red herring (laughs) (laughs) so should we start with katie's synopsis and then i'll give you all some background then we can dive into it and really dissect it together absolutely all right katie give us your quick synopsis so not the not the run-on synopsis that you know what you can do both we'll just edit it out later it's fine oh god quick Um, back of the novel back of the vhs copy that's how quick back of the novelization that came out from these films (laughs) so clue is a 1985 film based on the classic board game which i also didn't really grow up playing that much like we played it but not really that much we were more of a monopoly household So Clue follows the story of a bunch of people who are all invited to a house using pseudonyms and they don't know why they're invited to the house, but everything seems mysterious. And then you realize that this one guy shows up, Mr. Body, and he's like, I'm blackmailing you all. Ha ha ha. And then he dies. He sounds just like that. He's he like, does he, that is a, That's a line. Mm-hmm. That's a line. Yes. In the <laughs> Direct quotation. So yeah, he shows up. He's like, I'm blackmailing all of you. And then he dies. And everyone freaks out in the most comedic way possible while they try to figure out who killed Mr. Body. And then subsequently a billion more people die and they try to figure out how and you've got secret passageways and you've got the murder weapons and you've got the wonderful, wonderful Martin Mole and (laughs) everything's great. So 
they try to solve who is the murderer by going through the house and investigating and then you get a really weird crazy ending that doesn't make a whole lot of sense and they comment on it not making a whole lot of sense they say a few times is that clear and they're like is it there's a few different endings where someone could have been the murderer and then the cops show up and that's it i don't know if that was the best summary i could have been summarizing the game but whatever i mean who's to say it it is the first film ever based on a board game so it's, it's not the last not the last but the first what, of what other i was trying to think what other films are there based on board games uh jumanji jumanji was not a game that existed before the movie though Okay, Shit. so let's not fight. <laughs> but I have I'm two. I'm right, though. I have two. I have two. Ouija. Mm, mm-hmm. Ouija's not a board game. Yes, it is. It's sold in the board game aisle, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's... But it's not a board game. But it's game. real to no, Katie. It, it's, it's real. Okay. Okay, well then, okay. My, you, my you mom can't, banned Ouija from our house. You can't argue with Battleship. That was a board game right. that became a movie. So you can't. are you going to argue with that? No, but... <laughs> Ouija no, is a board yeah. game. Which is not a board game. Just because it brings out ghosts and spirits doesn't mean it's there's not no, like, fun pieces, family entertainment. There's no, I don't know, there's no dice. There's, there's, there's a piece? There's a thing there's you the, scooch. There's a, there's a, and then the board. There's a scoot. It's called a planchette. Okay. But. Okay. All right. Lament configuration. <laughs> Part two. Well, I wonder if they two. make a Hellraiser <laughs> Ouija board. Anyway, okay. off topic. So spooky. I love it. But I was thinking, why haven't they made the Monopoly movie because that just seems like that's a natural real life that's called capitalism that's real life it's called it. capitalism yeah oh, oh my gosh <laughs> i want mousetrap i yes. want operation i, I was want... seeing mousetrap too there's mouse hunt which is similar to mousetrap but there's no real board i, I think there should be a monopoly board game movie well it was an excellent synopsis i mean we could also do like a 30 second version okay so the 30 second version synopsis of clue People show up to this weird, creepy house. They don't know why they're there. They all have pseudonyms. One of them gets murdered, and then they all try to solve the murder in weird, crazy ways. And we don't really know who was the murderer at the end? Question mark. And then the cops show up. I like how you ended on question mark. (laughs) I forgot to add... Hilarity ensues. Hilarity. Hilarity ensues. Hilarity ensues. It is a whodunit. It is a a farce. A a comical. It's a ha-ha-dunit. Get it? Oh my god, I love you so much. A ha-ha-dunit. That just came to me. That was really good. (laughs) God, I'm good. Graham, can you just give us your impressions on rewatching it, since it is your deep love? Yes. So, one thing about this is... I've never actually played the board game of Clue until a year ago, I would what? like to say. And the only version I played is the Golden Girls version. Of course. So, <laughs> oh yeah, it was a gift to me. So, just want to say that, like, I've never actually played it because it seems too complicated because I like some simple stuff. But watching it again, here are my five things. One iconic score. I love the score, it stays in your head uh, long after you've watched it. I just love, love, love it. You know, I was, I was surprised with the score because when it first started, I was like, oh, okay, this is a psycho ripoff. And then I was like, oh, no, it's not. It's got that, like, cool synth and it's got, I don't know, I like, I like the whole thing. Two, a script that doesn't breathe. It is just joke after joke after joke after joke mm. after joke. And then, I mean, going into my third is just the Tim Curry performance, especially the last 15 minutes, oh is 
a masterwork. I, again, I know I always talk about things that should have been nominated for awards. Shelly Long, True Beverly Hills. <laughs> but Tim Curry, hello. That is a phenomenal performance just for that part alone. See, I agree. Um, I, I mean, Tim Curry is fantastic in this movie, but I had I had issues with the ending. Katie, this is my part. I'm so okay. Number- <laughs> wow. Number four, Phenomenal Women. Women, the, yes. the women in this movie that I would love to dive into a little bit, but Eileen Brennan, Leslie Ann Warren, Madeline Kahn, the cream of the crop of comedic actresses. And the fifth is I wish it was a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. I always think it ends very quickly. Like, oh, we've, we solved it. I'm like, did we? Did we solve? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just one of those things that rewatching it, uh, and actually we've talked about this, like you can recite the entire movie. It's like, you know this movie beat by beat, but every time you watch it, it just brings you a lot of joy. And like, what a cast. And you can tell they're having a ball mm. making this movie. I wish it was one of those movies that had like a gag reel that I could watch. I know it's probably like before the time of gag reels, but I really, really wish there was a gag reel to this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It is... It's fantastic. I'm so glad we could introduce you to this, Katie. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Ashley, why is it the, why do you think it's your most watched movie? Okay, so I am the youngest of three. I have two older brothers, and so I was always... (laughs) Graham, they can't see you. (laughs) I know, I'm just, I was giving Ashley props because I'm also the youngest. You were raising the roof, nerd. Yeah. And so I didn't get a lot of choice over what we would watch together like when it was the three of us, they always determined it. And my oldest brother works in film, still like loved it since a kid. So it was just whatever, whatever Justin wanted to watch. Right. And so as a kid, I would sneak down into our basement where we had another TV and I would watch a lot of TV by myself and I would watch a lot of stuff late at night. I think that's why I had sleep issues for so long, but I'd literally go down and watch like basic cable and Comedy Central and Nick at Night. And so I kind of like discovered this movie on my own. I don't remember the first time that I ever saw it, but I do remember that it would be repeatedly on. And so I would just watch it again and again. And I think part of the reason why I loved it is that it's fast paced. And I like that because my dad and I would watch some like Bogart and Bacall movies and just like that quippy back and forth, which laid the foundation for me loving things like Gilmore Girls and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, right? And it was also risky, but still appropriate, right? Like you don't actually see anyone murdered. There's not a lot of blood. Sex is alluded to, but never really done. So as a kid, it enters you into that without overexposing you. And I was a very sensitive mm. kid. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, because what is this movie rated? Is it like PG-13? PG. PG? Oh, because PG-13 didn't exist by that time. It did. It was oh. brand new, though. But yeah, because I think the, the movie that made a PG-13 them realized that they needed to make it was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was a right. year before. So this was around when they were making the PG-13. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, because I was like, the boobs in this movie don't quit. And so I was wondering if, I was like, would it be PG or PG-13 today? But yeah, that's a really good point about how it toes the line to violence and sex and the jokes. And there's very little swearing, if any. So it's a good point, Ashley. Thank you. Yeah, I think I also just, I liked 
that as a kid, I got some of the more obvious jokes and the puns. Like it also laid the foundation for me loving puns. But as I got older and learned more about the world, then I would get the next level of other jokes so that it kept being something fun to discover. <laughs> and I remember going to college being like, I love this movie. I brought my DVDs. Remember when people owned DVDs? Oh my God, yes. And there was that experience, like the first year of college where you're so desperate to make friends and it seems like, oh my God, we're so getting along, this like fast friendship. And if I didn't trust that I really was gonna get along with this person because I was looking for like genuine connections, I would ask them their opinion of Clue. And that would be like a test of friendship. Like, have you heard of it? And then once we watch it together, do you like it or not? Because if you don't, then you don't really get me. So how often would the latter happen? Did that happen with you? I think most of the time people were like, oh my God, yes, I've seen Clue, it's so great. And then there were a few that were like, no, they didn't really like it. And I was like, what's wrong with you? Because- Well, we've forgotten about yeah. them. Because they're not, they're not in your life anymore. Well, <laughs> with the exception of Bob, who just like oh. doesn't get it. But I'll get into why I think he doesn't, he's not into it. Did, I mean, did you run into people that just hadn't seen it? Yeah, I did run into a few, which was so interesting. Because when I was reading the articles about this, it really has become something that millennials and our generation and like touching sort of Gen X, just really, we really got into. Like when this film first came out, it was a total flop. Just failed. Really? Grammy, you, you probably know the exact numbers. I don't know where I wrote them down. 14.6 million. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Adjusted for inflation in 30, 34 million. <laughs> I love you so much. That's like one of my favorite things about you. I love it. But yeah, it just completely failed because when it was made, so like it's the first adaptation of a board game and Jonathan Landis, who ended up being a producer, had been trying to get it made for years and he would just have this very energetic pitch. And so he had a rough idea of the screenplay, but he couldn't figure out the whole whodunit part. He couldn't figure out how to make it actually work. And so they actually went through a few different screenwriters. So they asked John Stoppard to work on it. He worked on it for- Wait, John Stoppard? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. He worked on it for a year before he gave up and returned all the money that they sent him because it was like, I, I just, I can't. Wow. And like when he was interviewed for the 30th anniversary, he was like, I don't remember working on that. I mean, sure, that sounds like <laughs> me, but no, I, it, it like made no impression, apparently. And then they asked Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins to work on it. Right? Graham's what? Like, well, I, what? Okay. Wait, this Sondheim was involved in this for a portion? Wow. Okay. So they asked those <laughs> My little two, gay heart just like exploded. Right? They asked those two, but they asked for like an outrageous amount of money and they couldn't afford it. So then they asked British theater and TV director Jonathan Lynn. And so Jonathan Lynn was like, eh, do I really want to work on this? But they offered to fly him first class to L.A. for the pitch. And that was the reason why he said yes, because he hadn't ever flown first class. And he thought this would be a good opportunity to do it. <laughs> That's Wow. I mean, Wait, I'm, I'm still just gobsmacked about Sodheim. That. And Anthony Perkins, mm -hmm. that is insane to me. Well, I mean, Sondheim had merrily would roll along bomb on Broadway around that time, so he should have taken it. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, I know you're like, I wish it could go on longer. And I, to me, when we talk about the ending, I feel like the ending does fall apart. I do like that they have various endings. Going into watching this movie, all I knew about it was the cast was great, and I knew that there were different endings. So when I was watching it, and you had the one ending start, and I was like, oh, wait, I thought there were a different endings. And then I was like, it starts to go into other endings. So those are the only two things I knew about it going in. 
but it did feel like it fell apart to me at the end. Yeah, and that kind of, like, I was really intrigued, because when I was watching it, the home video version, the basic cable version, would just show all three endings. But the idea, when it was released, is that there were three different endings, A, B, and C, and then a rumored fourth one that was shot that nobody actually knows what it really was. Mm. And you would have to go to different theaters to see different endings. But the studio, when they were talking to critics, because critics got to see all three They had a miscommunication about which ending meant which. And so when it was advertised in newspapers and would say like A, B, or C, they didn't know which one it was. So critics didn't really know how to promote it. And so I think that was part of like a huge part of the failure. The articles that I read said that audiences were so confused, they just ended up not going to see it at all. I mean, and also a damn shame because... Madeline Kahn gives an amazing performance and one of the end, the only improvised parts. And like, you might not have ever seen it. Yeah. While a film like this today probably would be filled with improvisation, they stuck really close to the script. Really? But her Flames speech, which is improvised, was in one of the endings. So like, you go see it and you... A large portion of people didn't know about that scene because you had to go to that specific ending to see her make that speech. That was really funny. That was one of my one of the jokes I was watching when she does the flames part. I started yeah. losing it. It's straight up to me. It's iconic. And now, whenever I'm incensed online, that is the gif oh, I, I use of just the flames, breathless, mm-hmm. heaving. Just, oh my God, it was so good. So Katie, part of the reason why I thought you might like this too is that it was produced by Deborah Hill, who did Halloween, Mm -hmm. The Fog, Escape from New York. Mm. And I mean, now it has this cult status similar to Rocky Horror. Hello, Tim Curry. Mm, So that's, when I started watching the opening, I got super heavy Rocky Horror vibes because it's late at night, it's rainy, stormy, it's a mansion, Nobody knows what's going on. You walk in and there's music playing. It, everything kind of feels creepy. And I mean, you've got Tim Curry, so that is already giving a Rocky Horror vibe mm-hmm. to it. But yeah, as I've started watching it, I was like, if this feels very Rocky Horror picture to me. Yeah. That song that was playing, the shake, rattle, and roll, I mm-hmm. did not know this for years, but it was actually sped up for the film. Which would explain why I always sucked when I tried to do that in Guitar Hero, because I was so (laughs) used to watching it from Clue that I never actually listened to it to realize it was played. I love Guitar Hero so much. I played so much Guitar Hero. Ugh. That was one of my all-time favorite games. Anyway, I, I can see that. I can see games. just mm. rocking it at Guitar Hero. I didn't own a Guitar Hero or like whatever you played it with. So I would go to the Best Buy in Boston, right by the movie theater in school. And so I would walk to that Best Buy just so I could play the demo version of Guitar Hero. Nerd. And well, I got really nerd. good. <laughs> I was just at Expert buy the damn level. thing. <laughs> Money. I was a poor college kid. I commend you on uh, your ingenuity. Thank you. That's very good. So let's dive into this cast because, oh Uh, my God. uh, Okay, I'm going to talk about them in the order mm -hmm. that they appear. So first, Tim Curry playing Wadsworth. Yes. Amazing. It was actually offered to two different people before they had this one person whose name I already forget. He died, so couldn't be in it. Oh, he died. Uh, fuck yeah. him. Sorry. Yeah. 
<laughs> His loss. Sorry. And then they offered it to Rowan Atkinson, which was when he was popular with Black Adder, but mm. uh, had had yet to introduce the Mr. Bean character to the U.S. And you're going to see like a lot of British influences. And the reason why Tim Curry got into it is because he and Jonathan Lynn, the director, went to boarding school together. So they've been friends oh. since they were like 14. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. So wait, why didn't he go to Tim Curry first then, instead of these other two losers? I think the you know the studio losers. But well, one's I'm sorry, dead. no, I mean, Rowan Atkinson's great. I love Mr. Bean. Were these two jabronis? <laughs> these are <laughs> a dead guy. What a loser. <laughs> no, but I was like, I just I cannot imagine this film without Tim Curry. Like it is, Mm-mm. he is perfection. I will note, I haven't seen that many films with Tim Curry because the ones I've seen are so amazing that mm-hmm. I don't want any other film to disappoint me. Well, don't ever uh, watch Congo. You never Congo. have to worry about... Uh, okay. Wait, don't ever watch Congo. what? <laughs> don't watch Congo. Congo's horrible. Oh, based on the... Um, Wait, maybe we crazy. should watch okay, Congo should. because I've seen... <laughs> oh, you have? Oh, maybe we'll make oh, her watch that in the future. God. Congo's friggin' horrible. And I love Crichton, too. Yeah. But... Yeah. Anyway. Congo's terrible. Next, we're introduced to Yvette, who... Oh my god, I forgot to write down her name, who she was played by. Graham, do you know who she played by? Colleen Camp. Thank you. And it was Madonna, Demi Moore, and Jennifer Jason Lee were rumored to want to audition for the buxom French maid. Wow. But Colleen Camp came to her audition in a French maid's outfit. She was really committed. She really wanted this. And in no well, she, small part... She wore that outfit. She, she wore, wore that outfit. Yeah. Yeah. In no small part to her ample decolletage ended up getting mm-hmm. the part. I would like to say, like, I think if I were to be cast in this movie, I would be a cross between Yvette and Mrs. White. Yeah. And maybe Miss Scarlet. Yes. Just like, you know. Just not Miss Peacock, apparently. Okay. I get it. <laughs> no, me either. No, I'd, I'd either be, I'd either be a vet or maybe Miss Scarlet, I guess. Colleen Camp is an interesting actress, too, because I think of the of the main cast, she's the one that... I mean, she did bit parts a bit, before and after, but, like, she, she never really took off. Yeah, I was gonna say, she's the one I don't recognize, you know? She, I, she was in... She has a part in, like, Apocalypse Now. Mm. She was in Valley Girl, playing this oh, bohemian mom. Oh, my God, she's in, yes. she's in Valley Girl. She plays Valley Girl. the main girl's mom. Like this earthy, crunchy, bohemian mom. So, oh, and she's like, very, she's very much a hippie in that movie. And then I think this is what came after that. So they're very different performances. Yeah, it was Yvette and Mr. Body that I was like, how'd these two wind up in a cast that is of this caliber? And then I was trying to think, am I looking at the cast backwards? So at this point where they were, because I was also thinking, I'm like, you know, you got Madeline Kahn, you got Tim Curry, you got Martin Mole, these these people who it seems if you were to approach them and be like, hey, would you want to be in a movie based on a board game? I don't know if they were at the career level that they're like, no, that's ridiculous or sure. I was surprised mm-hmm. that such a high caliber cast was put in a movie based on a board game. I mean, if you you really you really want to sell it. Right? You want to make yeah, it happen. Exactly. I'm thankful. Very exactly. true. No, um, yeah. it's funny. So, 
pretty much everybody else is like these well-known or established actors or actresses. But Mr. Body was played by Lee Ving, who was the front man for the band Fear, which was like huge at the time. And the studio really wanted him. And Jonathan Lynn was like, well, I said no to so many things. Okay. Or was it Jonathan Landis? Sorry, when you have two Jonathans involved, because Jonathan yeah. Landis ended up not being able to direct because he had another project. So that's when they brought in Jonathan Lynn and... He stayed on as executive producer. But yeah, you've got Colonel Mustard, Martin Mull, later of Sabrina yes! the Teenage Witch fame. Yep. Oh, I, th- I I saw Jean Parmesan. Jean Parmesan? Who's Jean? What is that? From Arrested Development? Oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Relax, Katie. <laughs> no. I was like, oh. as I'm watching it, I'm like, it's Jean Parmesan. Yeah. Mrs. White, Madeline Kahn. Uh, Perfect. God. She's so amazing. Mrs. Peacock, Eileen Brennan, who is recently uh, out of rehab for a painkiller addiction post a car accident. Okay, so I love Eileen Brennan. She's phenomenal in this movie. So she was, yeah, this was her first role after getting in a severe car accident. She had left lunch with Goldie Hawn, her co-star in Private Benjamin, and she was hit by a car. God. And just like walking the streets. So she had like been gone for quite some time. So yeah, this was her first big role after a long time being away from the spotlight. It's funny. I, I didn't, I didn't know her as well as I knew the others and starting out, I wasn't as indoor, but then as the movie went on, I, I was, I was totally team Island Brennan. God. She, I actually watched, she's an, she's an Academy Award nominee, like for also what? Madeline Kahn was and Leslie and Warren. And she was nominated for private Benjamin. Oh, which I watched uh, her movie with Goldie Hawn, which I watched last night again. She's fantastic in it. So I would love, I just love, love, love everything Eileen Brennan does. Yeah, when she starts freaking out about the poison glass, I was like, okay, I'm aboard. <laughs> she was so good. <laughs> <laughs> so as Graham mentioned, Leslie Ann Warren played Miss Scarlet. She was also just a last minute replacement because Carrie Fisher was supposed to be Miss Scarlet and then went to rehab like four days before they were shooting, which Jonathan, it was Jonathan Lynn, Jonathan Landis, one of the Jonathans was saying, I had no idea that everybody in Hollywood was doing cocaine. He's like, when I met with Carrie Fisher, she just said she had hay fever and was sniffing a lot. I was like, it's the 80s. Oh man, Carrie Fisher would have been, I mean, no shade to to Leslie, but Carrie Fisher would have been awesome. (laughs) She would have been so good as that role. But anyway. And rounding out the last two, Michael McKean as Mr. Green. Oh my God, coming off of, you know, this is Spinal Tap. That man is amazing. And Professor Plum, played by Christopher Lloyd. At the time, Back to the Future had not yet been released. But I knew him because I would sneak to the basement and watch Taxi, which is where I also (laughs) was introduced to Andy Kaufman and fell in love. Yeah, he had an Emmy by then, I think, from being on Taxi. I can see that. So, So, yeah. It's fun. I didn't even realize that this was pre-Back to the Future. So it was like, I mean, that was his biggest role mm-hmm. ever, right? So, like, interesting. Very cool. It was funny. So Martin Mole and Christopher Lloyd, love them both for lo- ma- many, many reasons. But they were both skeevy and kind of gross and hit on Yvette and Miss Scarlet. But f- for some reason, Christopher Lloyd's way of doing it grossed me out, where Martin Mole's way of doing it I thought was funny and kind of pathetic. <laughs> I don't know why, because yeah, when I watched the two actors hit on her, yeah, Christopher Lloyd, his made me more uncomfortable and like, bleh. And Martin Moles, I was just like, oh, that's, that's You're like, sad. oh, I'd love for him to inappropriately hit on me. <laughs> no, that's how I just would be more comfortable with it, I guess. Well, I think it's just because, like, 
him playing Colonel Mustard. I was about to say Colonel Sanders. Playing <laughs> Colonel Mustard. You just don't really think he has a chance. Whereas no. Professor Plum could play off his weird psychological, like, be super manipulative and end up being yes. successful, which makes it even creepier. Well, yes. And also, Colonel Mustard references his mommy and daddy at some point <laughs> in the movie. So. When I lost that my mommy and daddy in the war. So <laughs> and the part where he's like, are you trying to make me look stupid in front of the other guests? <laughs> You don't need any help with that. Or you don't need any help from me, sir. That's, That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, he was he was my favorite, I think. Out of all of these people who are all... It's hard to pick a favorite. But yeah, I think Martin Mull's character and lines and I, delivery, mm-hmm. he, he was the one who made me laugh the most, I think. Which is funny, because I'm usually team Madeline Kahn all the way, but that could be because I love Mel Brooks movies, so... Oh, God, Yes. Yeah, I just, like, so when I think about this film, I, like, I was trying to think about, like, dissecting it and saying, what do I really love about it? And what I really love is the feeling it gives me. I love the one-liners. I love how quippy it is. I love that some of the humor is just really obvious because as a kid, I felt like I was being invited into this world, right? But it just, it was fucking hilarious. Like, I just, I was watching it last night again and just guffawing out loud. I'm like, <laughs> I, you know, maybe I'm an easy laugh, but it, it just, it was the timing and everything is delivered so yeah. well. My favorite sequence in the movie where I think everybody is just firing on all cylinders is after dinner when they all go into the study and Mr. Body has arrived and he's basically like having them reveal all of their secrets like, mm-hmm. why they're there. And they're all, like, the, the amount of jokes in that 10-minute scene is incredible. And every scene, you know everything about those characters in those 10 minutes. And I wish that scene, when I say that I wish this movie was longer, I was like, I wish that part had been just, like, so much longer because everyone is so effing funny in that. Yeah, it's just, like, I totally so agree. on. And they talked about mm-hmm. how when they were filming it... <laughs> it was a very fun environment to be in, right? And everybody had to, like, keep up with that fast pace. And so I think it was, like, Christopher Lloyd and Michael McKean where would, like, joke in between takes and Tim Curry would just look over at them with this, like, death stare because he has so much of the exposition. He has so much to memorize. And you're just yeah. like, I read, just in, in talking to your point, Ashley, about, like, the fast-paced dialogue, I read that he, the direct, one of the Jonathans made the whole cast watch His Girl Friday, yes. which was a screwball comedy from 1941, which is just similar to this, like so much fast-paced dialogue. And he said, this is what this is going to be like. Job well done. Job well I, done. I thought, the pa- yeah, I thought the pacing was really tight. You know, the story moved along at a great clip and it nobody overshadowed anyone else, mm-hmm. which was really nice. I thought as an ensemble cast, you know, there wasn't any, cause it easily could have been a character like Miss Scarlet with all her innuendos and that line where she's like, I'll eat anything. I'm like, Oh my God. I love, <laughs> I love all the jokes, but nobody, it, it seemed like a team effort, you know? Mm. And I also think that plays into the end when you start to lose track of how many characters there are because you you want to know like oh is one missing mm-hmm. or is one not where they're supposed to be but because it's such an even keel nobody outshines anyone else it's hard to keep track of where everyone is yeah who the murderer or the murderers are like mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter who cares like you're just yeah. here to have a good time with these yeah. people 
Yeah, for sure. And I think that's what lends it to so many rewatchings because when you are watching the different endings, you're starting to think, is this one plausible? But wait, who was missing? Wait, were they actually missing? And so yeah. to me, that is also where a lot of the art comes in of the filmmaking of how did they weave that? How did they shoot that? And how do you get mm-hmm. so caught up in what is happening that you're not paying attention to who isn't there? Like you're not figuring yeah. out the who done it really early on where you're like oh yep you totally just telegraphed the whole thing now i'm just completely Mm -hmm. out of it that was it that was it for me i didn't as i'm watching it i wasn't so focused on trying to figure out the mystery i was more focused on what jokes were coming next yeah so that was that was really enjoyable as someone who we all three of us read a lot so i know that when we watch whodunits your instinct to try to figure it out ahead of the character and i was not focused on doing that at all here so this was i don't know my I can't. Even, I've probably seen this over forty times. I don't know because, as as Ashley pointed out, it was on Comedy Central constantly, mm-hmm. so it was always on. But I never noticed this one part in the movie. There was one of the endings where Mrs. Peacock is the one who's murdered all the people. There's a scene where they're all eating dinner at the beginning, and Mrs. Peacock is eating it, and she's like, "Oh my god, this is delicious!" You know, and she turns to Wadsworth. And as she turns, Wadsworth intentionally blocks her view of the cook who's right behind her in the kitchen. <laughs> and I had never noticed that before. And I'm like, well, okay, they were setting that up, that particular ending, with that scene. So I'm wondering, like, if I watch it again with the lens of Miss Scarlet, would I see things that Miss Scarlet intentionally did? But or- doesn't that mean Wadsworth would have known all of this stuff at the beginning? But at the end where he's basically detailing everything that's gone on like he's he he's he knows it all anyway yeah that's true. because it also relates so i have never noticed that because again there's so many times i watch it i just get caught up right even when i knew we were watching it and i needed to be more observant but i also just needed like the warm hug that this film provides because pandemic but in every single ending he will always say to Mrs. Peacock, he's like, and though monkey's brains, while popular in Cantonese culture, are not often to be found in Washington, D.C. I love it. Graham's mouthing this along at the same time. <laughs> Is that what we ate? <laughs> that's, again, that's one of my favorite parts. There's a local small film house in Minneapolis, and they will often show, like, older films. And so Bob took me, he got tickets when they were showing Clue. And I would just, I mouthed words through the whole thing and I was in this tiny theater filled with people who love the movie as much as I did. And like, I love, that is what I really love about just life and art. Something where it becomes individually meaningful for you, but then you can go experience it and you're surrounded by people who have the same like love of this thing that you engaged with individually. It's that collective individual experience. Like when you go to a really good show. Yeah, it's like all these people also were young kids in the 90s where this was on TV constantly and they were watching it just as much as as you were you know that that is a fun experience I wonder why it was played on TV so much so like Graham when we talked about Troop Beverly Hills and you know with Clue you both have mentioned that it was on reruns all the time on Comedy Central but if it was both movies were flops in the theater, I wonder why Comedy Central or whatever cable network they, those movies were re- on repeat on would play it so much. Well, I wonder if it was good. Oh, I was going to say, what I was reading is that it was really cheap 
to oh, to syndicate, not course, syndicate, but it was really cheap to put on, and so they could fill with later night content and not go off the air, right? Because yeah. that wasn't a thing anymore once we were in the eighties and nineties. Right. So right. that's a good point. Yeah, I just like, I also love the little pieces just throughout the films. Graham, you pointed to that thing, but I also love some of the recurring gags. So like after Wadsworth steps in the dog poop, you'll notice that a number of the guests, there's that over-exaggerated sniffing sound, but that carries throughout. Mm -hmm. Or I love the part when Colonel Mustard comes in and Wadsworth closed the door and he like turns around to ask him a question and just gets bookcases right in his face. (laughs) (laughs) Just like these little tiny gags. Everyone, everyone. But Mr. Green stares at Yvette's cleavage. And I was like, yes, he plays his part as a homosexual man. So like he plays it to that final part, right? Mm-hmm. Never letting up. Or when they're all in the study and they're going to sit down and Mr. Green is trying to sit, but everyone just takes yeah. up his spot. I was like, oh my God, I love this so much. Did you notice that Miss Scarlet rarely sits in this movie? And the reason yes. is, is that her dress was so tight, she couldn't sit down. So they had to like, have her lean. Because the costumer wanted it to be true of the time period, which meant corsets and boning. So she had something called, it's like a lean away or a lean to or something. And so it's essentially had these armrests that you could lean on, but she couldn't, yeah, she couldn't sit. And so like everybody in between takes, they would go into the billiard room because almost all of the set or almost, yeah, almost all of the set was, was a set was built in. There was only one. I think it was the ballroom was the only thing that was ever shot on location. Yeah, and so she would just like be like leaning because she couldn't play with everyone. I think one thing that we haven't touched upon is that this is a period piece mm. and it takes place yeah. in 1954. And one of the things that, like, th- there's lots of talk about McCarthyism in this. It's showing and, on, in the kitchen. The... Yeah, right. And uh, as a kid, I was like, and like communism is a red herring, I said several times. And me yeah, as a when they mentioned like, J. Edgar Hoover as yeah. a living thing and not as the butt of as a joke i was like oh yeah and it's just like as a kid i was like yeah communism is a red herring like i didn't i didn't know anything about that crap <laughs> like, little graham walking around his house did communism. you know <laughs> <laughs> i think that's also part of why it landed so well in our generation because we didn't experience any of that right we didn't experience yep. any of the cold war like we were babies with no memory and so these were just ideas to us, you know. Communism was just a joke about a red herring. We mm-hmm. we didn't have to experience mm-hmm. any of that horrible thing. Like, you know, the Berlin Wall came down in 89 and we were like four and five, so. Yeah, but like, it's just funny that this movie with all of these topics has hit. Yeah, to your point, like, we didn't know anything about that, but nope. haha, what a good joke. Jager Hoover's on my phone too, yeah. you know. <laughs> 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 what is that? It's like, is the FBI in the business of cleaning up after multiple murders? Why do you think it's run by a man named Hoover? <laughs> <laughs> Katie, what were some of your other favorite parts watching this for the first time? I mean, I told you guys the boobs in this movie were on point. And I, I did I was like I was like, Yvette's boobs should have been her own character, honestly. I <laughs> think they were. I think they, <laughs> they, were. they kind of were. <laughs> but no, everything Martin Mole did just cracked me up. It was just it was it was fun to watch and I liked the jokes were funny. You know, this movie is, what, 35 years old? I know, which is gross. gross. <laughs> this movie is 35 years old, but the jokes still land, and they're still really funny. There's mm-hmm. there's a few that I was like, okay, that's fine. It's definitely not PC. <laughs> yeah. No, no. As I'm watching it, I'm like, all right. Yeah. But 
a lot of the jokes still in, and they were still yeah. really funny. And Timeless. they, yeah, like so, I watched it with my boyfriend, and he had seen it when he was younger, and both of us would still crack up at the same parts. Someone who was watching it for the first time, and someone who had seen it when they were a kid. So I like that aspect of it. It's a movie that I think I would show my kids as something fun. It's something that seems to have a lasting impression. So it was fun. Yeah. I look forward to the day when I can show this to my nephews. And I hope that they will like it. Like, I think if you like wordplay, it's, you know, Clue the Game is British. Parker Brothers uh, originally owned it. So it's a British game. It was uh, directed, you know, and written by a Brit. And so for me, I love British humor. And the love of that just deepened when Katie and I spent that semester in London. But I think that's also part of the reason why Bob doesn't like it as much, because he's not as into British stuff. And so that is like one of my greatest disappointments is that like he's not really into the movie and i'm like it is hilarious what is wrong with you so if you met him in college if you met him in college yeah that was your litmus deal breaker (laughs) i mean he failed two of my (laughs) he failed one and a half of my litmus tests when we were first dating but like somehow had enough other shining characteristics that we're still together years later so i mean also maybe i lowered my standards as i got there i don't know guys i don't know Higher, higher standards. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like... He reads. I, it just, it still stays really good to me. I don't like to mainline anything, like, back to back to back. Graham, I don't think now as an adult I would watch it like you did True Beverly Hills, like, every afternoon. But I think I probably would have well, as a with, kid. With your Clamato juice? Excuse me, that was, like, 20 years ago when I did that. <laughs> I mean, I'll do that to some. Though I would love to get a Clamato juice right now. That sounds great. Gross. I'll send you some. Have you had? Cl- oh. I'll okay, send you a pack you. of Clamato. I'll give you my address. <laughs> I'll have Amazon delivered by drone, right? That that's so that's fucking thing. good. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, Katie, would you watch this movie again? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll watch it again. It seems to fall in that same realm of movies that I don't know if it would be my first choice if I wanted something funny and comforting. Like I might go to a Mel Brooks movie before I go to one of these like I might put on Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein or whatever if I want something in that same vein but I would definitely watch it again yeah I will say the only thing and it's not about the film but the only thing that annoys me is so this is currently available on Amazon Prime to watch for free and so for a long time my DVDs were packed up back at my parents house in the suburbs and so I would just watch that and starting when I was a teenager was it like 12, 13 or something like that I started watching everything with closed captioning and what really annoys me and I notice this a lot is for a film that is so important and so quippy and so back and forth on the DVD the closed captioning is off it doesn't do like an exact transcript. It'll just like substitute or summarize certain things. And I was like, you're missing it. And so then I started watching. You're missing all the jokes. And then I was watching it on Amazon Prime and it's a different closed captioning track. And that one actually follows it a lot more clearly. And I was like, yes. But I just think about that in terms of like accessibility and having a best friend who has to... Not, not y'all. I have other best friends too. Another best friend who has to have (laughs) closed captioning. And I'm like... What the fuck, man? As somebody who worked in a post house and we had to preview and edit closed captioning tracks, I was like, what the fuck? What is wrong with you? So Mm -hmm. it's my only complaint. I'm a big fan, big fan of subtitles watching a movie. I love it. My partner hates it, but I'm like, I love, I love reading it. I love reading my movies. Can we talk about the ending a little bit? Let's do it. Which one? 
Well, so I was fully on board with this movie. I thought it was great because I could not figure out who done it. Which, Ashley, from what you're saying, it sounds like the writers couldn't figure it out either. <laughs> but, so I like the idea of the three endings. I just, that part with Tim Curry, while a fantastic performance where he goes through basically the entire movie extremely fast the characters wind up saying get on with it get on with it a few times and that's kind of how I felt too I'm like I almost wish Tim Curry would have been you know when you play the board game you're like it was Colonel Mustard in the library with the candlestick I almost kind of wish that it had that same if Tim Curry's like I know who did it it was yada yada with yada yada and yada yada and here's why so the ending felt really convoluted to me and with him going through all the previous parts of the movie I'm like yes I know this I just watched this I, I I've been here the whole time just tell me who did it so if instead Tim Curry was like this is who did it this is why but then you had three different instances where it technically could have been any of the people here that I thought that would have been great but that was the only part where it fell apart for me was because I was like, okay, I've seen all of this. Just get to the point. Because the characters even wind up saying, just just get on with it a few times. And you both are mad at me, but I don't no, care. No, I disagree. I think you miss out on so many jokes, so Wrong. many phys- physical physical humor. I disagree. I respectfully disagree. All right, that's I really think, so I think it's a little bit harder when you watch all three back to back. And if you, you know, you're watching this as an adult, and you're like, okay, I get it. I get physical comedy or whatever. And I think as a kid, I hadn't really seen a lot of physical comedy. So being able to see that again, and I'd never seen a film that almost made fun of itself with the like, get on with it. And I think that's what takes it to that higher level of farce, right? There's like mm. comedic whodunit, and everything else, but that to me really tips the scales into like a full on farce. And so I wouldn't want that to be missing, but I totally see that interpretation for you because it is a lot. It is a lot of exposition. It's a lot of explaining it, but yeah. And I get like, as I'm, as I'm watching this, it feels, it feels like a Looney Tunes cartoon. It feels like a Marx brothers movie. It feels like an Abbott and Costello. So I, I get it. And that could be just, Katie watching it in 2020 as opposed to Katie watching it when I was a kid or when I was growing up but yeah I think there's certain things we forgive more as kids or that we've never been exposed to and so then we're just like oh my god this is amazing I remember being in film school and people talking about certain things or doing whatever and I would like watch an older film I'd be like yeah whatever that already happened and it's like no that's the film that established this you know, and having to having to come at it from like different points of view because now so many films are just like super fast paced, you know, like a lot of commercial films are just very quick, very get to the point, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think we get so get on with get it. Get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> we get so conditioned to that, right? I found that even when I haven't been watching as many movies or films lately, and yes, they are different. I'm a snob. But oh, totally. with watching T V and then I'll go and watch something more artistic and that's a bit more layered and I'll realize that I'm out of practice and that I'm missing key things and then I get mad at myself because I'm like you spent all this time and money getting a fucking film degree and you can't even figure this (laughs) shit out like I was watching The Watchmen and I was like this is really good but 
fuck, there's shit that I'm missing and I'm so mad. Yeah. Similarly, Ashley, like, I think we were watching Watchmen and uh, y- you need to be focused on that show. You need to not be on your phone and something would happen. It'd be like, what's happening? What's it? And Brandon's like, if you didn't have your phone in your hand, you would <laughs> Yeah. If we're watching something and he pulls his phone out and I'm like, you just... just- Five minutes, just put it away. <laughs> I am the phone person in my relationship. Bob is like, can oh. you just no? Can you just oh. not? I'm like, I don't. But I haven't touched I know, but it. But I'm looking up the movie. <laughs> I'm looking up facts about the movie. So when the part comes up, I'm be like, did you know why that happened? <laughs> I'm just like, but social media is happening. Yeah. Oh, um, I meant to ask you this: was there there wasn't a maid or a butler or a cook in the game, right? Not that I remember, no. And there was never, Not like, the way that they brought this to creating a actual story to it, because the game doesn't have a particular narrative other than, like, somebody died, figure it out, right? And, like, y'all mentioned playing it. I don't think I really played Clue as a kid. My nephew has the Harry Potter version of Clue, and I'm like, does it... Do people end up dead or just like hexed by a spell? I'm very curious. No, they had to (laughs) insert the blackmail. And so that's why they placed it in 1954 and had the trials going on in the kitchen with the cook so that that became more of a through line. I see, I see. Yeah, because the cop showing up at the end, I was like, what is... Yeah, when when that one guy came as a missionary, I was like, this is weird. I hope he comes back as something else. Howard Hessman from Head of the Class. Yes. (laughs) Can I just say that the Golden Girls version is who, there's no murder, obviously, it's who stole the cheesecake. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was a fun romp, or as we coined on our trip to Seattle in, what was that, 2014, 2015? It was a goddamn delight. 2015. It was a goddamn goddamn delight. delight. It was. It was. was. I'm on board with this movie. I liked it. Are you on board game with this movie? (laughs) I'm on board game with this movie. Nerds. Yes, I thought it was super fun, it, you know, with the A-plus cast of characters and comedians and enjoyed it very much. Thank you for the recommendation, Ashley. Love it. Worms the cockles of my cold black heart. <laughs> cockles? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, read a book. I'm, I'm blushing. I'm blushing. <laughs> it's funny because there's other, there's other movies that, yeah, of course the movie I picked was Hellraiser that wasn't one of the movies I grew up watching it was just one of the movies that I've seen the most but when I think of movies that you quote all the time as a kid I think Wayne's World and Tommy Boy and these things that when you watch them or even if you just hear a little bit of a joke that could be possibly connected to something you just start cracking up and warming up inside because it not only reminds you of this movie that made you laugh but of when you watched it and like who you watched it with so now we'll get to share that experience with all of you. Hmm. I love that. I've never seen... I've, I have not seen Tommy Boy. <gasps> okay, we need I'm to put gay. that... I'm gay. Okay? <laughs> Excuse me. Tommy Boy, give me a break. Oh, God, I love that movie. We can add it to the list, Little but, like... <laughs> Graham, would you like to introduce our mini-segment? Yeah. So here's a new mini-segment that we can do ever so often on this show. And I'm going to introduce either either a book or a song or anything really that I think the other two of you will enjoy and I'll do it this time but maybe another episode one of you can do uh, it as well a mini let me introduce you a mini let me introduce you and mine is a book called my best friend's exorcism it is by author Grady Hendrix and this was introduced to me by my friend Josh 
And the reason I am recommending this is, one, it's horror that I think Katie is going to gravitate towards. And Ashley, this is also 80s nostalgia. Lots of great references. I think both of you would really enjoy it. Basically, it's about two girlfriends in Charleston, South Carolina in the 80s. Best friends, one's poor, one's rich, and one night they experiment with the drugs. And one of them has a bad episode and starts acting very different. Okay, don't talk about it anymore because I just bought this book. <gasps> no. I was going to say, yes. So Graham I think, recommended it to me. I yeah. just bought this book, and that is just the part that I got to. It is easy breezy. It's a fun read. It's I got, I got kind of scared at certain parts of it, but Katie's going to be like, Graham, really? But I did, and I think it's, you could probably read it in like a day, but highly recommend it. Super fun read. So check out My Best Friend's Exorcism. It's got a great cover too. It looks oh God, very, so it's very evocative. It looks like an old VHS tape. That font, um, it is mm-hmm. so late 80s, early 90s that when you held that up, I was like, oh, when I go through school libraries and I find books with that font, I know I can weed it because it's yeah. at least 25 to 30 years old. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to go either find that at my library or buy it from my favorite local independent bookstore. Yes. So I can catch yes. it. Yes. Definitely. This is one that you want to own. Just the design of it. You want to own this. Book. Yeah. It's not a Kindle book. Yeah. But to segue, we finished our first theme, y'all. <gasps> our first yeah, theme. Yeah. And we are transitioning to our new theme, which is really kind of Katie's theme. It's It's horror. Spooky. Yes, it's the spooky, spooky season. So it's spooky season. It's October. We are going to do three straight weeks of horror films that we're going to introduce one another to. Next week is my choice, and it is Frank Marshall's 1990 terror comedy, Arachnophobia. <laughs> Hey, I, I'm so you've so never scared. you both of you haven't seen this. No, I okay. I feel like I maybe saw clips as a kid or like saw the trailer, but I just that made me terrified of spiders. I have had to actively work not to be so scared of them. It, I still yeah. am. So I am an arachnophobe, like hugely an arachnophobe. And next next time I'll tell stories about my experience with spiders. But this, while it being a, a horror comedy, it's produced by Emblem Entertainment, which is Spielberg's oh, company. Yeah. It is, I mean, John Goodman's in it. It's very funny, but there are sequences that are completely terrifying if you are scared of spiders. So I'm excited to talk about this. I'm excited for you to experience it for the first time. It'll make you look twice before you basically do anything, like go to, go to take a shower, go to the bathroom eat cereal so <laughs> fun make sure you're not sitting near anything that could tingle you during this movie okay so i listeners i am taping this episode in my trunk of my car in my garage and i can see spiders right now like okay. there i can see spiders and spider webs so i'm not gonna watch the movie no yeah in my car but i'm a little nervous but it'll be great I'm excited that there's it's a horror great. movie that I haven't seen that you yes, guys can, yes. that we can talk about. And it's more like, I don't like horror as, as we all know, but so this is like a comedy as well. So you'll see why I picked it. Okay. Can't wait. Yes. This will be good. But don't kill spiders because they eat all the flies and stuff. So they're really important. Okay, I disagree. So we'll talk about it next no, time. No, don't kill spiders. <laughs> they're good. We would be overwhelmed well, by kill insects. This one, <laughs> you just usher them outdoors. Ugh. Well, thanks y'all for joining us on let me introduce you as always it was a goddamn delight and we hope you will join us next time for arachnophobia bye bye y'all bye
Let Me Introduce You is a podcast hosted by Graham Veth, Katie Kubert, and Ashley Crone. Music by Kevin McLeod. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Make sure to follow the Let Me Introduce You podcast on Instagram at Let Me Intro You Pod and on Twitter at Let Me Intro You.